Thank you, Pastor Tom. Thank you, uh, leadership at Holden Chapel. Uh, it's good to be here. Um, yes, my name is Jonathan Cashman, and I was uh, just sitting in pastor's office um, thinking of this to, uh, to this morning and kind of contemplating going over my notes, and um, there was something on his bulletin board that kind of stuck out, and it says this, just think you're not here by chance, but by God's choosing. His hand formed you and made you the person you are. He compares you to no one else. You are one of a kind. You lack nothing that his grace can't give you. He has allowed you to be here at this time in history to fulfill his special purpose for this generation. I love that. Isn't that great? Yeah. Um, so just a little bit about um, myself, um, my family, uh, and I just moved up here. I'm originally from here. I'm originally from Rhode Island. Um, and so I'm a New Englander through and through. You know, we've not lived here for quite a bit, though. My wife and I have been living in Nashville, Tennessee, and then we had a time in Orlando, Florida. But if you want to put up the slide of my family, if it's up there, there, we're out at the, uh, what is that called? The, uh, the old mill. There it is. The old mill. Yeah, so we're hanging out there. There's the fam. Um, Everly is five, and that's my wonderful and beautiful wife, Brittany, and Shiloh, and myself. I'm so most blessed. And this one, we got to keep our eye on, because she looks a little, she's got ideas, right? She looks like she's up to something. She's got something going on. She's cooking something. So we're going to keep a special eye on her. That's Shiloh. Uh, she's amazing. Uh, so yeah, so uh, my wife and I have been in ministry together ever since we met, um, we met in 04, and so we met at a Christian coffee house, and I had a band, and she had a worship team, and um, we just kind of got together, and all our dates were ministry dates, and uh, yeah, so uh, that's kind of how we started, um, and of late, we've uh, are become the new owners of Identity Coffee, and so my little plug is try Identity Coffee. Um, you'll be coming around. You'll see it somewhere. We're opening a new location in Fitchburg. Um, but God has kind of brought coffee in our life so we can kind of connect with the community um, around here. You can go to the next slide. <laughs> Poor Shiloh. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, so we're, we're big on discipleship and big on reaching uh, the lost. Um, uh, and our heart is for uh, seeing New England discipled and, and coming to Christ. So, um, there are a lot of uh, lost sons and daughters up here, would you admit? Um, so this message I'm going to be giving is on the, is called, I'm calling it the lost sons. And it's on the, the message of the prodigal son. Uh, the, the younger son's story is a, lo- a lot like my story. And so I kind of connect with this guy. Um, but the story of two sons, both are lost. A lot of times we look at it as like the bad younger son, the good older son. But, um, yeah, this is one of the most powerful parables. Well, anyway, uh, Jesus is hanging out with some sinners and um, some of the saints of the time, the Pharisees, were kind of giving them what for about it. And so he's catching flack for hanging out with these guys. And so he decides now that he has them all uh, together to tell them this story. And he tells three parables, and this is the third of the three, the lost son. And so... Um, I'm just going to go ahead and, and, and jump in here, and, and let's, uh, let's pray that the Lord bless his word. Father, we thank you, God, for, the, for your word, Lord. We ask that you would penetrate and do what it does best and change our hearts, reveal our hearts, and make us more and more like the Father. And we thank you for this word in Jesus' name. Amen. Then he said, a certain man had two sons, 
And the young of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. And so he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living, which means wasteful. But when he, uh, he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of the country, and he sent him into his field, fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, His father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to the father, Lo, these many years I have served you. I have never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found. So we're going to talk about the younger son and the older son. So the younger prodigal is what we consider wasteful. Any, any younger here today? Who, shoot up your hand if you're the youngest. Youngest, youngest, youngest. Wild childs, right? How many oldest? How many oldest in the room? Right, responsible. So here Jesus is showing the spectrum, right? And so it's interesting that he calls the younger, that he calls him the younger one, because I'm the youngest, right? I'm literally the youngest of five. Um, and so I was always kind of the wild child too, right? So, um, so here is a, a man though, the picture that we see of the prodigal son is a man that went deep into a foreign land and lost everything. He lost everything he took with him. I see emptiness and humiliation and defeat. He who is so much like his father now looks Less like his, more like his father's servants, and he's become like a slave. He's degraded, he's lost. So younger sons are everywhere, and they're all around you, and especially up here. You know, New England, um, every Barna, Barna is this group that kind of polls the Church of America, and every once in a while they come out with these statistics, and every single time New England's on the top five of, of, uh, the, the latest is like post-Christian or non-Christian, or churchless, or de-churched, or whatever you want to call these categories, they're always they're always highest in New England, and it's an interesting it's an interesting statistic because this, really this is where the Church of America has started, but for some reason this is where the harvest field is. 
Right? Jesus says the harvest is plenty, the laborers are few. So he's looking even today for laborers into this harvest field who would go out and find lost prodigal sons, older and younger alike, right? And bring them home. The, the whole goal of this parable is to show the heart of the father that he wants his sons home. So he's lost. And, and the definition, Webster's definition, uh, not to make a lot of it, is that he's uh, not made use of or won or claimed, no longer possessed, no longer known, ruined or destroyed physically or morally, taken away beyond reach or attainment, insensible, hardened, lost to shame, unable to find way, lacking assurance or self-confidence, not appreciated or understood. And it says that a famine has come. So here he says, all right, dad, give me my stuff. I'm going to, I, I have some ideas. I want to go out and, and, and have a good old time. And so the father just gives him his, his livelihood. And that's like saying to him, dad, can you just die and give me my inheritance now? It's really an impertinence of what he's asking his father to do. But the father does. He gives him his inheritance. He goes out and he buys a Porsche or a Lamborghini. And he's like out at the clubs. And he's, you know, he's having it. He's living it up. And then a famine comes and he loses everything, right? So now he has nothing. And so he's left with the, with with a, a, a mentality that says, I have to survive. Now I have to survive. So what does he do? He goes and he finds a pig farmer. He has no work, and so uh, so he's going to feed pigs. And for a good Jewish boy, you know, remember the audience that he's talking to, this is a pretty disgusting trade, right? So not only is he uh, feeding the pigs, he's wanting what the pigs were eating, and nobody gave him anything. And Jesus is drawing out the degradation of sin, right? How even pig slop looked good to him. You know you got a problem when you got a hankering for pig slop and nobody's giving you anything. You've done some, you got to made some bad choices in your life, right? So he is depraved. He sent him into his fields to feed swine and he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were ate, but no one gave them anything. And this is really the end, the bottom. And God will allow this. God will allow you to hit the bottom so that you can find the floor of his grace and love. He'll allow you to just go to that bitter end. So you have to look up. You hit the ground. So all you could, all you have left is to look up and he'll let this happen. But this man is depraved. And so he's, he has this moment where he comes to himself. And so he's, he's, he's thinking when, when he was a younger son, I had it way better than this. So though he lost his sense of sonship, it's the sense that he's lost something that reminds him that he is son. And he says, I'll go back to my father. He remembered the love and the compassion that his father had. He was completely lost. But this is the greatest revelation that he had. And this is the greatest revelation that we can have. That we come to ourselves. I mean, people live their lives in pigsties without ever coming to themselves. Ever having that moment where they snap out of it and they say, what am I doing? This is a great revelation that he has. So, but he still feels like he's a slave and he has to now come up with a speech. So he has the speech prepared and he says, you know, um, all right, I got to say some stuff because it's not like I just can just waltz back home. You know, what he did was horrible. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said, hey, 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 hang on, I got a speech. And he says, Father, I sinned against heaven and again in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. But it's like the father doesn't even listen to him. 
he kind of ignores them and he just kind of put, he orders um, his servants to come and, 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 and take care of him. So on the one hand, the younger son realizes that he has lost his dignity of sonship, but at some time that sense of lost dignity makes him aware that he is indeed a son. And it was that loss of everything. God will allow this to happen to you and to I. So this is a painting um, from Rembrandt. And so one of the last paintings he made. And uh, there's a book that's um, called The Return of the Prodigal Son by uh, Henry Nouwen, um, who's he spent hours and hours with it. This, this hangs in uh, Russia in St. Petersburg in, the, in a hermitage. And it's been there since the 1700s. It stands about eight feet tall, six feet wide. And so... Um, the 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 author of Henry Nowen kind of sat with this painting for days, just staring at it, and he has these wonderful insights into it of what Rembrandt may have been depicting. And so here it is, obviously, uh, the younger son, his head's shaven, you know, sort of like what would happen to you if you were in a POW camp or you were uh, in the army, right? They take your identity away. They give you a number, right? So his head's shaven. He's, no, he's lost his identity, who he is. His clothes are tattered. His shoes are kind of, one is, one foot is kind of off, and his shoes completely, sandals completely off, and his foot is scarred. The other one, he's been through a lot. He has been on a long journey, and he's been through a lot of, a lot of pain. But the one thing that he has still is this little scabbard, this little sword that's on his hip. And, and, uh, now it has this idea that maybe he, that was the one thing that recalled that he wouldn't give it up. You know, though he lost everything, he just held on to that one thing. Maybe his father gave that to him. It was something that he just held on to that reminded him that he's a son, that he's still a son. And here's the father. His gate is wide and welcoming. His, the, the, Rembrandt was brilliant with light, and so the light is on him the most, and his hands, one feminine, one masculine, like the mother consoling him and the father bringing him back in. And then off to the right is the elder son who stands, is, is, he's very erect, this, this staff that he's holding makes him even more uh, stiff, and he's not entering into that circle of love. He's sort of just off to the side and holding himself back. And just staring there, the light is constricted and cold on him. And so here this, here's this picture of it, 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 the, the, it's almost like the space between them is causing tension. It doesn't make me want to uh, feel sentimental towards this, what's happening. It's making me feel the tension between them because the older son's not really welcoming him. He's just sort of standing off. So the question is, um, do we see ourselves in any of these? So I see myself in this guy, right? I see myself mostly in, in, in the younger son. But as I grow older, I can still, I can see myself in this older son too. Um, when I was, when I was a young child, three years old, my, my parents, they divorced. And so I had, um, I'd ping pong back and forth between my mom and my dad's house. My dad lived in Providence, Rhode Island. My mom lived in East Providence. And, um, that's kind of how I lived. And so when I was about 13 years old, my dad, I begged my dad to get me a, a guitar because I saw, uh, this movie called Back to the Future and, uh, Marty McFly playing Johnny Be Good. That did it. Also, my butt, my brother had a buddy who, uh, he's two years older and, um, he played the, he came over one day and he, he brought his electric guitar and an amp and, and plugged it in. And I thought, man, it was like he had like a wizard's wand or something. It was just amazing. And so I had to get one. And so I sort of 
you know, poured myself into lessons and, and learning and trying to get really, really good. And that got me around guys that played also mostly older um, dudes that were, you know, they dressed kind of darker. They listened to heavy, heavy music. And so soon I, I did the same thing. And so that musical, that dark metal culture kind of drew me away. Um, and so in that world, uh, you smoke and you drink, and that's what being cool is, you know, smoking. Nothing's cooler than a 13-year-old smoking a Marlboro. Um, and so soon enough, you know, I coughed my way through getting into, like, smoking. And um, one night, um, my dad caught my friend and I uh, drinking. I, I'd come home. My dad lived on, a, on the third story of a three-tenement house. It was built, like, by Columbus. It was super old. You couldn't, yeah, it was dilapidated. And so what I did was he lived on the, we lived on the third floor. And so I stashed a, a change of clothes on the second floor where there was just a bunch of nothing. And so um, I would come home and change my clothes and take some Listerine so he wouldn't smell the alcohol on my breath or the, or the smoke on my clothes. And so I did that. And when I came out, he was standing there on the landing. Now, my dad was a very large, very hairy Italian man, very hairy, did I say hairy? He's very hairy guy. So he, like, he always never wore a shirt in the summer. And so um, he was standing there. He was a Green Beret in the military. So he was very, you know, very keen. I could never get away with anything. So that, like, that old house kind of betrayed me with the squeaky stairs. He thought he was getting broken into, so he came down ready to fight. So here comes his son, and he says, what are you doing? Why are you sneaking around the house? And I was just perplexed, so I, and I'd been drinking, so I wasn't very quick to, and I was trying to, he's like, why are you in the second floor? What are you doing down here? And he's, asking, he's throwing questions at me. And so I, just, I was trying to think, think, Jonathan, like, what are you doing on the second floor? And I, and I remembered, oh, the washer and dryer down here. Oh, Dad, I was, um, I was checking the lint in the dryer. You know, you never can be too sure. It's, you know, a lot of house fires these days, Dad. And so he said, let me smell your breath. And so sure enough, I was busted. And so I, <laughs> I was scolded. He brought me down to my friend's house and scolded him. It was really embarrassing. And I thought, you know, if I'm going to live like this, I can't stay here. I can't live like, like with these rules. So I ran away one day and went to live with my mom. What a rebel. And so, uh, yeah, I let her deal with me for 10 years. And so um, for those 10 years of my life, um, I lived like a prodigal son, wasteful living. And uh, it was, you know, my life was filled with sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And um, I smoked anything I can get my hands on and, and, you know, lived my life like a crazy person. And um, But always had a band and kind of kept myself together in some way, shape, or form so I could kind of like, um, you know, write songs and not be a complete waste product. But the idea was um, I was experimenting with drugs to sort of expand my mind. But what was really happening is I was being drawn down into this dark pit of uh, into this place where I was going to be in a pigsty. And so sh sh soon enough, that's how I had felt. I remember this one specific time where I was in my bed and I was very high and I was listening to a self-help tape that someone gave me and probably not recommended, but... Uh, the guy who was talking, he sounded like he wore a, wore a corduroy suit. He sounded very corduroy. And um, I remember thinking, like, I, I, I can't do what he's telling, what he's talking about. He's talking about being a good person and giving to others and not being such a selfish person. And I just remember having the, I started crying because I realized I'm not that. 
there's no way I can ever be like that. I'm not a good person. I'm, I'm a selfish person. My friends all know me. I know how I am. And, I'm, and I just had this sense, overwhelming sense of that degradation and, and that sinfulness, just the weight of the sin in my life. And I realized that, yeah, maybe I do need to be a good person, but I don't see any way out. And that's a, that's a horrible place to feel. But that was my bottom. But my way out came with a phone call from my guitar player. He told me, he said, listen, man. He said, I gave my life to Jesus Christ. And uh, I didn't know what he meant. I didn't really understand. I went to Catholic school as a kid, but, you know, I had no idea what giving your life to Jesus Christ actually meant. And he said, well, and here's the deal. If I'm going to be in this band, then we need to do two Christian songs. Now, we just came out with an album. We got signed to a label. We were, everything was kind of hitting for us. But inside, I was a mess. And so I, I, I said, well, do you know any? I don't know any Christian song. Are you going to play Striper or something? Like, I don't know what you're talking about. So he, he brought, he goes, oh, I'm going to bring some stuff over. So, okay. So we had rehearsal that night, and he brings over a tape deck, and, you know, it's what the ancients used to use to play music. And um, we, we got into the, into, the, into the practicing, and at the end of the rehearsal, he announces, okay, boys, it's time for us to learn our Christian songs. And the first song that he plays, I kid you not, is a song called I Like the Christian Life, and it goes like this. My buddies left me when I came to Jesus. They all had better plans of their own. I like the Christian life. Why would you like that? Fast forward. And so the next song wasn't much better. It was a song called I'm a Pilgrim. It had words like wearsome and yonder and hem of his garment. And it was like, oh, my gosh, what are you doing? So I, I thought... Well, there's no way we're playing these songs, Dave. So we got him down to one. He wanted us to play twos. Anyway, that got the conversation going. So now we start talking about heaven and hell and God and the gospel, and I see a difference in him. So it's, obviously he's like a little more compassionate, a little bit different from us because we were sort of wild and crazy, you know. Um, but I noticed like a boldness in him. He used to be meek and, you know, kind of sort of a pushover. Now he's like, you know kind of giving it to us for being sinners and stuff. And I kind of, I, I kind of admired it. He was also annoying, you know. Um, I remember telling his wife, um, who was his girlfriend at the time, I said, you know, I, I believe in God. I believe in God because I went to Catholic school. I look, hey, hey, you know, preach to these guys. I, I'm, I'm, with, like, I'm on your side. Like, I believe in God. <laughs> I believe in God, you know. <laughs> Sorry. And uh, she said to me, where's the fruit of that? And I thought, oh. Okay, spiritualese, you know, but um, it's, it's uh, yeah, it, I get it, right? Where's the fruit? I didn't maybe believe like he did, and I didn't really have this conviction that Dave did. So let's get the conversation going, and over the next few days and weeks, maybe, um, I said to him, look, I'll go to church with you, see what this is all about. We started talking more and more, and so I went to church with him, and he brought me to a small little New England uh, church called Grace Chapel. Now, the night before... We played I'm a Pilgrim <laughs> at the Blackstone Bar and Grill, and I woke up with a very large headache because I had a lot of soda the night before. When you have a lot of soda, you have a lot of... Yeah, so I woke up with a bad headache, and I thought, oh, i got to go to church. And it was before I had a cell phone, and so I couldn't just text him and be like, hey, bro, not feeling good. Um, so I was like, i got to get up and get dressed. So I got up, get dressed, got down. He got, took me to this church. Now, I thought it would be like Catholic church the way I remembered it, and it'll just be quiet and incense and I'll just fall asleep in the back and get up, 
eat the bread and leave. And that was going to be the day. And it wasn't like that. It was loud. It was a small New England Pentecostal church. Did I say it was Pentecostal? Did I say it was loud? It was super loud. And so I remember, like, there was a band in the church. Like, why is there a band in the church? Like, this is odd. And so I sat in the back, and I just remember, like, somebody called me brother, gave me a pamphlet, people raising their hands, singing songs. And I thought, this is a cult. This is what this is. I know what this is. I get it. Okay. I know what's happened here. He's in a cult. And so I got to get out of here. Y'all crazy. So in the midst of that crazy environment, the Holy Spirit got a hold of me. And uh, I start, what I mean by that is I sense the presence of God very tangibly and the love of God in a tangible way and had an encounter with the Holy Spirit. And I sat in my seat and just cried. And I made it look like I wasn't crying. I was sort of like just doing this number. I was just kind of like, I'm just going to pray and be holy. Oh, Jesus. And so and I just filled my sleeve with tears. And um, and I remember thinking, this is something's real about this. And this is bigger than me. And I'm I'm this guy. I'm a terrible person. And it was like the Holy Spirit took a Brillo pad to my filthy life, you know? And I realized something else. He was saying you, he was saying something to me. And he said, you'll write songs for me now. I think what he was saying is, I don't like these songs. So you have to write me some new stuff. <laughs> but, <laughs> but that was overwhelming because I didn't like bluegrass music and I didn't like the stuff that I was listening to. You know what I mean? So it was like, I didn't know what that meant, but this call on my life started then. And from that day on, I gave my life to Christ, and I went home and took all these beer bottles and threw them in the trash and didn't go back to a life of debauchery and craziness. I threw all these guys out, and he cleaned my house up, you know. And what he was really doing is he was restoring my sonship. He was restoring me back. I understood that I was a son. I wasn't a waste product. You know, the prodigal son, he, he, he lost his humanity even. You know, he wasn't even considered a human being. Like, really, he was just ignored and left. And so when you come from that place where you don't even feel like a human being into a place where you feel like a son all of a sudden, you know, you realize real fast the power of God. And um, so there's these symbols in the, in the story. Um, first thing the father does is he calls for a robe to be put on him. And a robe, these are to me like symbols, right? So it's like he covered his shame and gave him salvation and gave him righteousness in him. Put a ring on his finger, gave him a status as a son, his identity, his authority, his responsibility. He put shoes on his feet, giving him freedom and ability and mobility. And he threw him a feast that's a symbol of joy, right? And gratefulness and sustenance and community. And I had all these things. All of a sudden, I had all these things. And all these things came to me. You know, but listen, God doesn't equip us this way for nothing. He doesn't equip us with all these things for nothing. And it's not just for ourselves. So I quit the band. I said, look, man, I can't be in the Beatles anymore. We're trying to be like the Beatles. And so I told Paul McCartney one night, I said, listen, bro. Um... And I just, I, I knew that the Lord was like kind of getting me alone with him. Like just, he wanted me alone. And he just kept having me like s stop everything. 
And so finally I get to this place. I remember I was kneeling in front of my couch, on my couch and just praying and saying, Lord, I don't have anything anymore. So if you can, you know, anything I built before is gone. So if you can use nothing, here you go. And my band hated me and all my friends hated me and everybody was, my buddies left me when I came to Jesus. That's true. That was prophetic for me. But I did. I liked the Christian life. I had peace. I had peace for the first time. I was clean for the first time. I felt a sense of, of ownership, like God owned me in sonship, right? So this, this sense came on me. So soon I woke up with this thing, and it was a song. And I thought, oh, this is like what Pilate would sing. And it was a musical. And all of a sudden, all these songs came. It was like I was being, like something was downloaded. And I wrote this musical. I didn't like musicals. I don't know why even, you know, it was like, I don't know why I was really interested in doing this. But I felt like this is like something that I was into songwriting. And so I, I, I built this 40-song musical. And I didn't have any friends. <laughs> I didn't have a band. And I lived in Rhode Island. So now i got to find musicians to pull a musical off. And Christian musicians? Like, where are they? Like, Now, the talent pool in Rhode Island is pretty shallow. And Christian talent, I don't know where. And so out of everywhere, out of the, you know, behind the rocks and the bushes and everywhere, like God sent all these musicians into my life. And we built this musical as a, an evangelistic outreach. And uh, we would go into high schools and we evangelized our community. And we saw all these guys come to Christ that were our age. And so, and we started just discipling them. And so soon it was like me and Phil and John and me, Phil, Jimmy and John, me, me Phil, Jimmy, John, Larry, me, Phil, Jimmy, John, Larry and Paul. You know, it just grew and grew and grew and grew. And so we would all meet up in each other's houses and, and read the word and disciple them because, you know, David and Shelby, my guitar player and his wife, they sat with me every night and discipled me. And if I didn't have that in my life, I don't know if I would have made it, you know. They sat with me, and they and they cared enough about me to like sit and listen to all my questions and listen to all my complaints and all the things that I didn't want to do, and they they cared for me. And so I, I kind of exemplify. I tried to do that with my friends, my new friends. And then when Brittany and I um, moved to Nashville, we re-recorded that musical and um, ended up putting it together again. Soon after, we took a position at a church called Calvary in Orlando, Florida. It's big, big auditorium, sort of like this, but it's like sat like 5,000. Um, and so we put the, it together as a big musical. And then we saw like other churches put it on. We had a Spanish church that put it on. And we saw about some 400 people come to Christ for that thing in one day. Um, and so, yeah, it was crazy. Well, yeah, praise the Lord. Well, glory to God. I mean, this is why he equips us is so that we'll use these things to reach the lost, to reach the prodigals around us, right? So um, then there's this older son. So there's the older son. And he's out working, right? He's, uh, he's, 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 he hears something coming from the house, and he calls a servant over. He says, what's going on? And, he's, and the servant's like, oh, your father's throwing this big feast, you know, your your brothers come home. My brother. Yeah, yeah, your brother. He came home and, you know, your, your dad's throwing a big feast and he, he slaughtered the fatted, cat, the fatted calf. Yeah, 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 because he's home. Your brother's home now. And so instead of being joyful, he's angry. He's angry. Ever meet an angry Christian? So joy and resentment can't coexist. Right? 
So he's angry and he's holding himself out. He won't go home because he's offended. He misunderstands God's grace for reward. He thinks he's, the father's rewarding the son. He's developed himself self-pity and a victim mentality. He's now the victim because now he never got. So this attitude is something that many of us live with, a sense of resentment. And it's so hard to deal with because it's so embedded and so closely wed to righteousness. He was doing the right thing. So his father comes out and he says, uh, Hey dad, you know, um, when your, your, your son, the son of yours, you know, he, when he was out with harlots, you know, I don't want to tell you that dad, don't tell mom, but you know, you know what I was doing? You know what I was doing? I was working. I was here. I was doing what I was supposed to do. And you reward him? This isn't right. So he's offended, right? And he has this overwhelming sense of self-righteousness, but it's also a self-rejecting complaint. So this complaint hardens him, and he's unable to enter into joy. His inner complaint paralyzed him, and that darkness engulfed him. You know, Henry Nouwen says the hardest conversion to go through is the conversion of the one who stayed home. The hardest ones to reach are those who have been insulated by their good works. But inwardly, something's going on. Now, on the outside, you would never know it. He was a good boy. He stayed home. He didn't go out and squander his inheritance. He did what his father asked him to do. But as soon as his brother comes home, and as soon as the grace of God is, the grace of the Father is being shown to him, something dark arises. And now we see a different person, a bitter person, an angry person, a resentful person. Where was this guy? He was there. It was growing within him all along. And it comes from this place of complaint that I have somehow not gotten what I deserve. That's where it comes from. And so self, so resentment and joy can't coexist, right? So the question is, is this elder son willing to confess that he too is a sinner in need of forgiveness? Is he willing to acknowledge that he is not better than his brother? Is he and am I willing to let go of my resentment and deep-rooted pride? And we're left alone with these questions. It doesn't, doesn't end like a happy fairy tale, right? The story just ends, and we don't know how the younger son received the feast or lived on in his father's house, and we don't know what happened to the older son. But what we are left with is this revelation of the limitless mercy of the Father, this limitless grace of the Father. And this is the message that Jesus is teaching his listeners, that God is all, all grace, all loving, all the time, and that the goal of the sons are to be like the Father, giving out, selfless, compassionate. The Father said, is, is right. So being a son means becoming like the Father, having the heart of the Father. It is right. It is right that we should celebrate. It is right. He's teaching the older son what it's like to be the Father. You know, 
the more I reflect on the older son, the more I can see myself in him. So I must put away my childness, child, childlike, well, child, childishness, and accept him like a child, but grow into this selfless father he wants me to be. I'm going to read something from uh, this book from Henry Nouwen. It's this is a powerful. It's a powerful quote. It says there is an enormous dark drawing power to this inner complaint. Condemnation of others and self-condemnation, self-righteousness, and self-rejection keep reinforcing each other in an ever more vicious way. Every time I allow myself to be seduced by it, it spins me down into an endless spiral of self-rejection. I let myself be drawn into the vast interior labyrinth of my complaints. I become more and more lost until in the end, I feel myself to be the most misunderstood, rejected, neglected, and despised person in the world. Of one thing I'm sure, complaining is self-perpetuating and counterproductive. Whenever I express my complaints in the hope of evoking pity and receiving the satisfaction I so much desire, the result is always the opposite of what I tried to get. A complainer is hard to live with, and very few people know how to respond to the complaints made by a self-rejecting person. The tragedy is that often the complaint, once expressed, leads to that which is most further feared, most feared, further rejection. From this perspective, the elder son's inability to share the joy of his father becomes quite understandable. He says, complaining is self-perpetuating. It's a, it's a downward spiral. And you can, and the more you look at what's been done to you, the more offended you can get, or the more you look in on and resentment, the more you can see how you're, you're the victim, and it just on and on and on it goes, and it wraps you up in, into this web until you can't find joy anymore, and then now you're outside of the house, and you can't come in, and you're holding yourself back. It's almost like you're daring God, but also, it, if you think about it, the, the, what's behind this son's complaint is the fact that he thinks that his father has done him wrong, that he's been taken advantage of. Now, wait a minute. I was told if I do the right thing, then I'm rewarded. How is being done, the, doing the wrong thing, how, do, how does this work out? Wait a minute, I've been duped. He says, son, you're always with me, and all that I have is yours. And this is what he's trying to get us to, th- to realize. All that I have is yours. Gratitude. Gratitude. Because gratitude and, re- and resentment cannot coexist either. Just the same way that joy and anger can't coexist, resentment and gratitude cannot either. Though we're incapable of, of liberating ourselves, right? We need Christ. We're incapable of liberating ourselves from our frozen anger. We can allow ourselves to be found by God and healed by his love through the concrete daily practice of trust and gratitude. Gratitude as a discipline involves a conscious choice. I can choose to be grateful. I can choose to look at all that he has given me. All that I have is yours. He says, you never gave me. He says, all I have is yours. What are you even talking about? Well, you never get, well, you never, you never, you know, it's like this, he's so myopic in what he's looking at and he doesn't realize the bigger picture, right? Perspective, perspective. So if you're struggling with anger and resentment, look to what you can be grateful for. Look at all that he has 
that is yours. That dark, dark voice of self-pity needs to go. It can be really strong at times, but it takes great effort and great spiritual effort and real discipline to step over that chronic complaint and into gratitude, into joy, into the house, into home. And that's really the, the father's design. You know, he's like, you know, you're a lot like your brother. You think that by what you're doing, you deserve my love. And your younger son thinks the same way. Your younger brother thinks the same way. That by doing, somehow he has earned my love or has not earned my love. And it has nothing to do with what we do. It has everything to do with what Christ has done. And so here stands the father with these two like sons who is both... This guy doesn't think he's worthy, and this guy thinks he's worthy. And so both are standing out of the house. And home, now it says that home is where I hear the voice of the Father say, you are my beloved. Home is where I hear the voice of the Father say, you are my beloved. This is home. This is home. And this is where we're left with the choice, listening to the Father or remaining imprisoned in our self-rejection. The question is not, how am I to find God, but how am I to let myself be found by him? It is not, how am I to know God, but how am I going to let myself be known by him? It's not, how am I to love God, but how am I to let myself be loved by God? How can I come home to that place where I hear the voice of the Father say, you are my beloved. You are my beloved. You know, when I was a young Christian trying to put this musical together i was um i was with my my friend john and we were you know recording something and i was there alone at the church at night and i something popped and all of a sudden these speakers just went out and i thought "Uh oh i broke the speakers (laughs) so i was trying to get them back to work and it didn't work out and uh this elder older gentleman gentleman in the church is a really good friend of mine. Uh, his name is John, and he, he came over the next day, and we were trying to get him to work, and we couldn't get him to work. And it was a Wednesday, and on Wednesday they had worship that night, and the worship leader that was going to come in um, was a very uh, he didn't like me, just put it that way. Um, he didn't like all the liberty that the pastor was showing me, and you know the fact that I kept messing up. You know, I, although I purchased the soundboard and the speakers, actually the ministry that musical purchased those things. You know, it, it not working was not going to make him very happy with me. And so here he he's coming in, and so I, you know, for better or for worse, we'll call him angry Christian. So angry Christian comes in, and he finds out what happens, and he blows his top, and he's very angry, and he's yelling and screaming, and so. Um, John tells me, hey, go into the fellowship hall and just let me deal with angry Christians. So I thought, oh, no, I broke the church. So I'm in the, I mean, I'm months in the Lord, you know. So I, I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm waiting and here comes the pastor and I hear more yelling and I hear cars screeching and doors slamming and then someone left and I thought, oh, my goodness, I did break the church. And so the pastor comes in and I was like, wait till your father gets home moment. You know, it's like, oh, oh, hi. And so he's like, listen, we're in the people business, not the speaker business. I was like, yeah, amen. That's right. Um, But that night I led worship, and the next day I took those speakers to a guitar center where I purchased them, and I I, I said, hey, listen, these things are are broken. I don't know what happened. And he said, well, how did you have them wired? No, I said, well, that one, because I I took them down, so I knew how they were wired. So that one was plugged into that one. And um, and he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, that's a problem. You got to, you know, the impedance, you got to put this on, you know, I I don't know. So anyway, he gave me some new speakers. I got the new speakers, put them in my truck, drove home, and I'm thinking on the ride home, who hired those speakers anyway? Oh, 
Angry Christian. <laughs> he wired them. So my pastor let him have it and he embarrassed him. But the, the, the whole, the thing that I remembered in that was how John and my pastor treated me. When I deserved to be punished or yelled at at least, you know, for messing something up, they just didn't. They, they showed me grace. And although maybe Angry Christian was right, his attitude was wrong. You know, and I thought to myself, I want to be like John. I want to be like my pastor. I want to be like that. I never want to be this angry, you know, self-righteous guy. But, you know, as we grow up and we grow older in the faith, you know, it's easy to hear the complaints in your mind, you know, that maybe you're not getting, that, that you're, not, you're not where you thought you should be. And then, therefore, maybe you've been taken advantage of by God. And then you find yourself in this self-rejecting situation. And we've got to be very aware of the voices in our minds, in our heads, in our hearts. And we have to take every thought captive, every thought captive to Christ. That we don't find ourselves down that labyrinth of self-complaining and feeling righteous about yourself. That you can't come into joy and that you can't come home. So I'm going to play a, um, a video. It's a song that my wife wrote called Home. And um, it's just that, you know. I think it's a good, it's a, it's a song of surrender. And it's a song of surrendering to God's will. And um, it says, in the shelter of his presence, I'm home. So while it plays, let me take some time to respond. Were you feeling home again? Or you could put aside your resentment, put aside your anger, and just be home. And hear that voice that says to you that you're my beloved. You're my beloved. All that I have is yours. All that I have is yours. You know, there are prodigals all around you. They're your sons and they're your grandsons and then your daughters and your, your friends and your cousins. And, you know, they're all around us. I'm going to tell you what they don't respond to. They're not going to respond to angry Christians. They don't want to come home to that. Right? Think about if the father wasn't home that day. And his brother was there. Oh, look what the cat drug in, right? Oh, looky, look. Oh, oh your clothes. Oh, your shoes gone. Yeah, we have to be careful, right, what goes on in here. If we're to reach New England, which is what we're called to do for Christ, then we have to have the heart of the Father. We have to be selfless. We have to be, we have to find those things in our hearts that are like the older son and route them out. We can't do it on our own. Only through the power of Christ. It's not in our strength. So take a moment during the song and just reflect on where you are. Maybe you're more like the older son. Maybe you're more like the, the younger son doing prodigal things. Come home. Come home. Let God speak to you. Let him heal you. Let him bring you home so that he can restore you. Give you those good gifts. 
put that robe on you, that ring on you, that, those shoes, and give you a big old feast and send you out to reach this lost and dying area of the country. Send you out into his harvest field. Father, I thank you, Lord, that you're working in our hearts and you're working in our minds. And so, Father, I pray the prodigal's home and I pray the older son's home and I pray the lost sons would find your voice today. Speak to us, Father. Speak to us how you always done. You call us sons, you call us daughters. Restore our sonships. Help us to understand who we are in you. Help us to come home. Help us to hear your voice. In Jesus' name.